0: Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, we're going to be looking at verses 57 to the end of the chapter this morning. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning grateful that we can sing your praises, that we can open your word and and see all that Jesus has gone through in order to uh, reconcile our relationship with you. I pray that as we come before you in worship, that our hearts and our minds are set to honor and glorify you today. I pray that the Holy Spirit would give us wisdom as we dive into your word. I pray that you would help us to uh, open our eyes to areas where uh, we may find ourselves afraid of being associated with Christ uh, in the culture that we're in and Lord I pray that you would give us strength uh, as we uh, move through this world and that we would be a light shining in the darkness we love you it's in your son's name that I pray amen so <clears throat> last week we had seen where Jesus had been betrayed by Judas and all of the disciples had abandoned him. And this week, we're going to look at Matthew's account of Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. And we're also also going to be looking at uh, Jesus fulfill- the fulfillment of Jesus's prediction of Peter's denial. okay? Uh, so we see a lot of predictions that were Broadcast before that's all coming true uh, Even in the midst of all that's going on it looks like everything's out of control for Christ But in the in reality everything is falling into place the way that God had planned for it to fall into place and so As we consider Jesus's trial It's going to be important for us to remember that the religious leaders. They face two challenges with this trial Okay, they face two challenges challenge number one is that they have to convince the Jewish people that Jesus has done something wrong that's worthy of being arrested and executed. Okay? Like, they're not okay with him just being arrested at this point. They want him dead. And so they have to convince the Jewish people that he is worthy of being arrested and executed. We've talked about this several times before. To arrest him without a good reason is going to lead to a number of problems of its own, right? But then to have him killed on top of his arrest, that could easily lead to a riot. It could easily lead to their own death. And so they have to do this carefully. The reason for this is that there are many in Jerusalem right now that believe that Jesus is the Messiah now that means that they believe that Jesus was sent by God to relieve them from Roman oppression that does not necessarily mean that they believe that he's the Son of God they certainly have no inclination that he's there to relieve them from the slavery of sin and death but It is important to note that there are many that do believe that he is the Messiah. And so, with that in mind, if the religious leaders don't tread very carefully through this process, they themselves are going to find that uh, when these people riot, they go hard at it, and they could easily lose their lives uh, in that process. The fact that Jesus is the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, who has come to earth both fully man and to be the Messiah, that's not going to weigh in yet. Like These people have no concept of that yet. So when he makes this claim, which we're going to see, that's going to lead him to be charged with blasphemy. All right, But that has no bearing on their understanding of his messianic relationship. Um, that blasphemy that they're going to accuse him of is going to be punishable by death, right? Leviticus 24 verse 16 says this, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The whole community is to stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death, whether the resident alien or the native. Okay, so ultimately this is the charge that they're going to convince the people that he is worthy of death with. Okay, they're going to say he has made himself equal to God and therefore he is worthy of death. Even though you believe that he is this Messiah, he said that he is God and therefore he is worthy of death. The second challenge that they're going to face is the challenge of convincing the Roman government that Jesus needs to die for whatever charges that the Jews bring up against him. Because you see, officially, Rome exercises control over all the judicial proceedings that happen among any, anybody within their empire, right? So they can step in at any time and they can say, no, this is not happening. You're not doing this. Uh, this trial is a sham. But what they typically will do is they'll allow the people that they have subjugated, they will allow them to have a certain level of authority amongst themselves. And so within a certain realm, they will allow them to try criminals and things like that within their own laws. But with that said, though, Rome will not allow anyone to be executed outside of their own hand. Right. They do not have the ability, the, uh, Israel does not have the ability to execute criminals because Rome says that is our jurisdiction. You do not have the ability to do that. So no matter how worked up the religious leaders get over Jesus' trial, they're not going to be allowed to execute him. And so they're going to have to convince the Roman government that Jesus has committed a crime worthy of death and they're going to have to be the ones that convince the Roman government to kill him. They're not going to be allowed to do it themselves. So this is the, the trouble that these leaders are facing. And we're going to see them address this first challenge in verses 57 to 68 in our passage this morning. So follow along with me as I read that. Matthew 26, 57 to 68. Those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had convened. Peter was following him at a distance right to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and was sitting with the servants to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death, but they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two who came forward stated, this man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. You have said it. Jesus told him, But I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, He deserves death. And then they spat in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah. Who was it that hit you? And so we see. In these verses that the chief priests and this whole Sanhedrin have come together to find a way to put Jesus to death during this this false trial this is so important to them and so deceptive of them that they didn't even wait until the morning to start this process they started this process in the middle of the night they have brought people together to give false testimony about Jesus so that they could find some grounds that are worthy of putting him to death. But even with people lying about him, they can't find anything that would stick. Right? How hard do you have to try to lie about somebody before you can find an accusation that's going to stick? I mean, these are false <coughs> testimonies, and yet nothing that they are putting together comes together in a way that they're going to be able to present this to the people, right? It says in chapter 14 of Mark's gospel, he says that the issue is that the false testimonies don't agree together with each other, right? You got one guy saying this and one guy saying that, and they don't come together. So you got to get your lies straight. People, if you're going to lie about Jesus, you got to make sure that your lies are on the same page. Mark says these things, Are not coming together and so therefore they're not able to make a case against Christ and then Matthew tells us two people got close there's two claims that got close they mentioned that earlier in the week uh, after Jesus had cleansed the temple the religious leaders approached him and said by what sign do you show us that you have the authority to do do these things, right? He had already accepted praise that was only worthy of the Messiah by coming in with the triumphal entry the way that he did. And then he cleanses the temple. He's accepting praise in the temple that's only worthy of the Messiah. And they say, by what sign do you give us that shows that you are worthy of this authority? And he stated, if you were to destroy the temple, then within three days, he would raise it back up. And then they interpreted his words as if you destroyed the building where all these sacrifices take place. If you destroy the building, then he would raise that back up in three days. And he also says later that he is greater than the temple, which is blasphemy. And so these people get really, really close with this accusation of grounds for Jesus to be killed. They distorted his word some, but at least there was some truth in their interaction, right? They heard a little bit of what he said, and so there was at least a foundation behind all of that. Um, other than this, none of these accusations that that's being leveled against Christ are landing. All right, they're trying their hardest, but nothing's happening, and You've got false testimony after false testimony coming before, and Jesus just sits there in silence. I mean, what do you do when people bring false testimony against you? Do you just sit there and listen to it? Right? If you were to do that, how do you think they would respond to your silence? Well, Caiaphas is infuriated by the fact that Jesus isn't saying anything. Right. He says, Jesus, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? Right. They have said that you have said you're greater than the temple, that if we tore down the temple, you would build it back up in three days. Do you not have anything to say about these things? But what Caiaphas does not realize is that Jesus' silence is itself fulfilling prophecy. All of this is falling into place exactly the way that God said it would fall into place. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, the prophet Isaiah said this, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. So even in the midst of all this false testimony, Jesus does not rise up to his own defense. He takes all the false accusations without saying anything back. And in the midst of doing this, he is fulfilling prophecy. Showing, proving that he is the Messiah. Showing that he is the one sent by God to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty that we deserve. Even in his silence, he is showing, I am the one that God has sent. Finally, Caiaphas asks, directly under oath, he says, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Now, this question doesn't indicate in the least that Caiaphas actually believes that Jesus is the Messiah or that he believes that Jesus is is the son of God, but if Jesus answers directly that he is the son of God, then he can be charged with blasphemy because sonship ultimately puts you on the same level as your father. And so if Jesus says, yes, God is my father, then Jesus is saying, I am equal with God. And in their mind to do that is blasphemy. Jesus's response should sound familiar to us if we were here in the last week or so because he uses the same response that he used with Judas when Judas asked if he was the one who was going to betray Jesus he says you have said it you said it not me you did are you the son of God you said it not me this is an indirect way of affirming something that puts the responsibility back on the other person. He says, you said it. That's right. What you said is true. We're going to see this response one more time when Jesus goes before Pilate. So keep this rattling around in the back of your head somewhere. This isn't the last time we're going to see Jesus say, you have said it. Jesus affirms that he's the Messiah. But he takes this opportunity right here And he says, no, I don't want you to mistake what I just said. I don't want you to think that I came here to break Israel free from Roman oppression. Because my messianic leadership goes so far beyond what you think that it's not even funny. He takes this opportunity to clarify exactly what type of Messiah he is. He tells them that in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. By saying this, he's saying, I'm not just some guy appointed by God to lead Israel out of bondage. From Rome, I am the divine son of man foretold in the book of Daniel and the object of the psalmist's reference to the divine figure who sits at the right hand of God in Psalm 110. That's me. You have no idea who you're dealing with. You said it, but you don't know. Jesus is saying that he is the everlasting king who will reign forever. He will reign forever. And it's in this statement that Jesus has done exactly what they needed him to do. He has directly stated that he is equal with God. And they lose their minds. Jesus could have said almost anything And it would have ended with them finding a way to kill him, right? It could have been anything. They were looking for any reason. He could have said, you know, Popeye's chicken sandwich is better than Chick-fil-A's chicken sandwich. And they'd have been like, what did you say? Kill this man. But in saying that he was equal with God, Jesus made this go big or go home statement. Right? They're looking for any reason to kill him. They're going to find a reason to kill him. This is the path that God the Father wants him to take anyway, so he makes it clear. If you're going to kill me, I'm going to give you the reason why you're going to kill me. It's because I am equal with the Father. And they tear their robes and they say, this is blasphemy. Do we need any more reason to go further with this fake trial that we're putting on when his own words have condemned him? In their own minds, because they did not believe this to be true, they believed that this was an offense that welcomed capital punishment. The high priest exclaims he is blasphemed. And the next line is absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. He says, why do we still need witnesses? Bro, you don't have any witnesses. Everything that everyone has said to this point has been false anyway. Like, what do you mean, why do we need witnesses? You've had people lying for you the whole time. You don't have witnesses. It's a ridiculous statement. Why do we still need witnesses? I don't think you know what a witness is. You keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. After hearing Jesus's quote-unquote blasphemy, he is sentenced to death. And then they begin to spit in his face. And they begin to beat him. And others slap him and tell him to prophesy about who, who slapped him. And every time Every time I read this, I'm filled with rage and sadness. For multiple reasons. First of all, like I've got this, I've got this insane trigger where if someone hits me in the head, I, I, I react viscerally. Like I'm instantly enraged. So even the idea of someone smacking me in the face makes me mad and then to be spit in my face and then smacked in the face like that just fills me with so much rage, so much rage. If it happens to me, I'm livid, livid. It's all I can do not to fight. And seeing it happen to Jesus evokes the same emotion in me. That's my savior. that's my Lord and these people are treating him like this and you've got these this smarmy arrogance of these people that are smacking him in the face and then saying prophesy Messiah who hits you prophesy Messiah who hits you oh Fills me with rage I mean all it would take is a word and these people don't exist anymore right one word they know they cease to exist or what might even be more fun in my sinful glee to watch would be jesus calling down those 12 legions of angels how about one of these smarmy people that smacked him in the face standing before an enraged angel because you just hit their god how about that what would that look like can you imagine how well that would go for them So it fills me with rage to see this, but then it fills me with sadness to know that the reason that this is happening to Jesus is because of my sin. The reason that Jesus willingly stepped out of glory in heaven is because I am a sinful human being who would rather rebel against God than to offer him the glory that he is due? And instead of leaving me condemned in my sin, leaving me to rot in hell, which is what I deserve, my Savior and my Lord was spit upon. Me. My Savior and my Lord was slapped in the face with people telling him to prophesy about who hit him. And this is the best thing that's going to happen to him over the next several hours. It makes me so mad and it makes me so sad. He's doing this for me. and He's doing it for you. Isaiah 53 Verses four to six says, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep and we all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished Him for the iniquity of us all. Everything that I hate to have happen to me, Jesus is enduring in my place. Everything. And one little bit of irony that is occurring here is that while they're telling G- Jesus to prophesy, like prophecy is being fulfilled. Like prophesy, Jesus, prophesy. And in the process of all this, prophecy is being fulfilled. All of this that's happening was long foretold before any of this ever occurred. And on top of all this, we have another bit of prophecy that was more recently declared that's coming true in the courtyard. Look at that with me, verses 69 to 75. It says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl approached him and said, You were with Jesus the Galilean too. But he had denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another woman saw him and told those who were there, this man was with Jesus the Nazarene. And again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there approached and said to Peter, you really are one of them since your accent gives you away. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath. I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed and Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So here we see Peter showing a great deal of courage after he initially ran off. Right, We see, we see moments of it, right? They come to get Jesus. He reaches for the sword which would be somewhat courageous. There's a whole troop of people coming at you and you grab your sword as one man and try to cut a dude's head off and get his ear. And so that's, there's some courage there. Jesus said, no, stop, we're, we're not doing that. And so if we're not doing that, he doesn't know what to do, so he runs away along with the other disciples. But he can't stay gone. And some of that courage comes back. And so he follows Jesus all the way to the home of the high priest and he sits outside to see what's going to happen. And you've got to imagine like this is a very hostile environment uh, for anybody that would have any kind of association with Christ. And it wouldn't take much really for Peter to end up facing the exact same fate that Christ is facing. just the wrong association and he's in that courtroom with Jesus. So I mean you say what you will about Peter there but there are some moments of extreme bravery in this man but the problem is that Peter is going to run into the same problem that Jesus spoke to him about in the garden he says the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak And the longer that Peter stayed there and the more it became apparent to everyone around that he was Jesus one of Jesus's disciples He realizes that this has become a safety issue for him, and because of that, his bravery flees. Three times in these interactions, Peter has. Each one of these instances, he refuses to take that opportunity. He just refuses, he's afraid. Each time he distances himself further and further from the Messiah, he swore that he would die for. Do you remember Peter's declaration? Right, The pride and the arrogance that he had when he said, Even if everybody else here, Jesus, abandons you, I will stand by your side. Even if everyone else runs away, I will die with you if necessary. He says he would never abandon Jesus. And now, when the pressure is on outside of Caiaphas' home, Peter not only denies Jesus, but he calls down curses upon himself, swearing oaths emphatically for the third time that Jesus is not someone or the second time. And after this, Peter goes outside and weeps bitterly. Now, this could have easily been crushing to Peter. He's obviously a man that struggles with pride, right? And we've seen that in his interactions with people. He may have never recovered from these denials. But Jesus had prayed for Peter before this ever occurred. In Luke 22, 31 to 32, Jesus said this, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sh- sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Like you're going down, dude. Like Jesus knows it, and I want you to know it. But when you've turned back, this is not the end. When you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Be the rock that you have been named after and strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him and he knew that he would struggle to make his way back into the fold. And so Jesus prayed for him. Peter's denial isn't anywhere close to the end of Peter's story. Peter ends up being one of the strongest and bravest leaders of the church. Right? If you read through the book of Acts, which is what we're going to go into next after this, we're going to see some amazing things from the Apostle Peter. Obviously, he still has his faults. The Apostle Paul rebuked him to his face once because he started going out of his way to not associate with Gentiles. Right, So he has his faults, but church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down because... His church leadership led to his martyrdom. But when they said, we're going to crucify you, he said, no, no, not upright, because that is how my Savior died. That's how the Messiah died. I am not worthy to die in the same fashion. So crucify me upside down. So church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified the same way that his Messiah was crucified. Peter was not a weak man. So maybe there's some here today who can resonate with this denial of Peter. Maybe you're experiencing this crazy culture that we're in right now. And by being a Christian, by being someone that follows Jesus, you feel like you have a target on your back. I mean, that's a very real fear that we should have right now. I mean, if you believe that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the only way to reconcile a person's relationship with God, if narrow-minded or that you're a bigot. If you believe that there are only two genders, people believe that you are a bigot, that you are narrow minded, that you're not following the science. If you believe that a sexual relationship is meant for a man and a woman within the confines of marriage, then you are narrow-minded and you are a bigot. If you believe that life begins at conception and that abortion is the taking of the life of an unborn child, then that is going to put you at odds with our current culture. That is going to put you into the crosshairs with a target on your back. And there is a growing amount of pressure on believers in our culture to disregard all that the Bible says is true in order to be more accepting by these people. Right? We're expected to bow the knee to other people's sinful tendencies so that they will like us. So that they will find us acceptable. And there may be a time when you will. Or maybe there's a time where, where you have neglected to associate in your relationship with Christ. Because you realize that to be known as someone who follows Jesus. It's going to cost you something. Right? We're not at a point right now in this Country where it's going to cost us our lives the way that other places where they're martyred for their faith in Jesus. But it could easily cost us our jobs. Right? It could easily cost us upward mobility in a company. And it could very easily cost us relationships. One day, it will likely cost us our freedom... And eventually, if things keep going the way that they're going, it will cost us our lives in this country. I had a man once tell me, he was an elder in our church, he was probably 50s or 60s, and this was before Kelly and I got married, he said he would probably die at home in his bed, I would probably die in jail, and my children would die as martyrs if the culture kept going the direction that it's going. And we may not be too far from that being true. If the culture keeps going where it's going. There may be moments when we are tempted to run. There may be moments when we are tempted to give in. When we are tempted to comply with society. Just leave us alone. And when you give in to those pressures. You may be thinking, well that's it for me. I denied my Lord. I denied my Savior. There is no way that He would accept me back. These denials by Peter shows that there, are, there is a way back. There is a way back just like there was for Peter. Right? To have moments where fear overwhelms us and causes us to drop our guard and to try to run away from our association with Christ, I mean, that's difficult, but Christ will forgive. His blood shed for you can forgive those things. If we will repent, God is quick to forgive. But I need to say this. If you never have the inclination to stand up for Jesus at all, if you never have the inclination to suffer through anything because of your re- relationship with Christ at all, I would not make the mistake of believing I, were a, I am a Christian if I were you. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, is a call to take up our cross and to follow Him. It's a call to come and die. Not a call to come and be accepted. Not a a call to come to an easy life. While you may struggle with fear and doubt, that is a normal fear. Okay? That's normal for this life. While there will always be struggles with fear and doubt, a believer in Christ has the Holy Spirit living inside of them. The Holy Spirit should embolden believers with their faith so that we don't run away from every hardship. We don't run away from every opportunity to share that faith no matter what it might bring to us. And so if you never feel the inclination to suffer even a little bit, I would not go to bed tonight thinking that I'm safe in my salvation. If there's no conviction over what the Bible states is obvious sin and there's no emboldenment from the Holy Spirit in your life, you should not believe that the Holy Spirit is in your life. And if you're here today, and that's something that you have experienced and you've been struggling with, today is the day that that needs to change. Realize that The door of salvation is open to you today. The Holy Spirit is calling on you today to repent, to change, to come back to the relationship that God has offered to you through the cross of Christ. All you have to do is repent, seek forgiveness for your sin, and the the doors of salvation are open. All you got to do is walk through it. And if you have any questions about that, come talk to me. Reach out. But don't don't walk out of here thinking that everything is fine when you have no relationship with God. To close. I pray often that we would be an emboldened people that we would be lights shining in the darkness. The good thing about each one of us having that light in us is that we shine brighter together. Right? When we come together as the church, we shine brighter together. And what's, a, what's beautiful about this is that, let's say that you are having a hard time. and Maybe your light's not shining quite as brightly as it did a week ago. year ago whatever when you're among the people of God that doesn't mean that the light itself has diminished but you have people around you that can help and so this is the place to be as you struggle this is the place to be when you need help this is the place to be so that as you have these moments like Peter where he denies his Savior, three times. That there's people around him that can help lift him up. And as Jesus prayed for Peter to be strengthened so that he can be strong for his people after he's gotten over this failure. Like these failures make us stronger. Right? It's not meant to keep us in guilt and shame. Right? We remember these failures, but we see how much the cross of Christ has overdone anything that we can do to fail. It's overshadowed our failures by its great success, and we no longer need to live in guilt and shame. And so do your repenting. Do whatever you need to do to get back in that right headspace with God, but do not stay there. God has given you everything that you need in Christ To get back in that relationship. Dust yourself off. Pick yourself back up. Get back in the fight. And let's do this together. Let's pray. Father, I come before you grateful for the cross. I often get overwhelmed by my sinful tendencies. And then I read all that Jesus went through to save someone like me. And I'm overwhelmed with gratitude. And I'm grateful that I'm not I'm not who I want to be but I'm not who I used to be either. And I pray that there are many here today who can say the same thing my prayer is that if there's anybody here today, Lord, that is struggling with sin and has not yet made the the step into life, I pray that today would be that day. Help us to see that there's reconciliation through Christ. Help us to not struggle with guilt and shame when we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And help us to be bold in our proclamation of the truth. But I ask all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.